0: You're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus and life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit redeemersgf.com. Well, good morning. Um, couldn't help but listen to the music this morning, and it really touched me because I was thinking through as we were singing how. Great and sovereign a god we had that the music this morning the, what we worshiped in this morning so closely aligns With what i'm going to be preaching this morning and and I pray that it blesses you and challenges you I actually wrote the sermon a while ago um, and it really affected me and affected me again as I was reading through it again and and praying through it and and um, Just seeing what god would have to do through it and it really it struck pretty deep a chord in me of how far I personally fall short in this area Um, But because of that, I think since it was an encouragement to me, I hope it will also be an encouragement to you. I know the title of this part of the series is called How to Evangelize, but if I was going to tweak that at all this morning, I would tweak it to be why we evangelize. I'll explain to you what I'm talking about here in just a moment. We're going to be turning here shortly to Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 31. That's the passage we're going to preach out of. But I have a question I know probably many of you grew up in church, maybe you went to Christian school or you grew up in a Christian family um, And you've probably at some point in your life if you did and if you didn't grow up in a Christian home this may be foreign to you, but um, At some point in your Christian life uh, in whether it be in church or school or whatever You've probably encountered an evangelism class or someone gave you a book to read on evangelism And you may have heard similar things that I did that I did growing up and going to these classes I, I specifically remember one in In school, I went to a very conservative Christian university for a while before I got kicked out. And the class was on how to share your your faith, how to do evangelism. And what I was taught in that class was not necessarily the gospel and how that applies, but I was given tips or tactics on how to close a deal. I was told to share my personal testimony, to bring people in with emotionalism into what my experience was and hopefully get them hooked into christianity based on that or maybe i would sell them on the benefits that would improve their marriage or maybe it would help their kids turn out all right Uh, maybe it improve their finances and these were the things that i was given as tools to share evangelism and while some of these might have benefits these might these methods might help i don't think or at least in my life the hows of evangelism were far less important to me than the whys of evangelism so this morning I will not be talking about clever sales tactics to quickly close the deal on a friend or a relationship. we will not be collecting emotional stories intended to convince you that you have failed, failed in evangelism to your neighbor or that you should simply just try harder. We're going to look at the scripture this morning. and We're going to hope that you hear your need for the gospel, and that translates to your neighbor's need for the gospel. That will help change your perspective and refocus your perspective on your own state of affairs, your neighbor's state of affairs. And it'll rekindle your motivation, the motivation that first brought you to faith. It'll rekindle that motivation to share that same faith with other people. Have you ever been nervous about sharing your faith? You've been in that situation, whether it be work or school or with a friend or family member, where you know, maybe this is the time I should be sharing. Maybe I should open my mouth, but you just don't do it. I can think of countless times that this has happened to me, whether it be with an international student or a friend or a family member or a co-worker. And I think in the back of my mind, why, why am I not feeling, or I am feeling compelled, but I'm not opening my mouth. Maybe it's fear of man. Maybe it's this fear of this lack of eloquence that I'm not going to communicate it well. Maybe it's the fear that I'm not going to have the right answer. I think some of these things, or maybe all those things, play a role in, and our lack of fervor for sharing the gospel, but I don't think they're the primary reason that we, or I especially, tend to fall short in this area of my Christian walk. What we're about to go through is not intended to be a guilt trip or a how-to evangelize sermon, even though that's what it says. Um, This is going to be primarily something to help you examine the scriptures and what we are called to do and why we are called to do it. In preparing for this sermon a while ago, I had just heard this story about our brothers and sisters 500 years ago during the Reformation, specifically a man named John Rogers. He was the first martyr of the Reformation. He was a Catholic priest who had become friends with with William Tyndale, the guy who invented the printing press and started uh, printing the Bible in a common man's language. He had become friends, had gotten saved, and in that left the priesthood got married, and ended up having 11 children, which the papacy was not really thrilled about a priest doing at that time. And when William Tyndale got in trouble, was uh, put in prison, was uh, cut short in his journey to translate the Bible, John Rogers picked up the mantle there and moved forward with this ministry. Eventually, he was caught. And under Queen Mary at the time, he was sentenced to death for his high crimes against the church. They sent him to prison while his wife was pregnant with their 11th child. And when they were sending him to the stake to be burned, on his way, he begged that he could at least please see his wife one last time, give her a kiss, and tell her that he loved her. They said no. So on his way to the flames, he looks over, and on his way, he's singing psalms, by the way, he sees his wife holding their infant son, and it's the first time he'd ever laid eyes on his son. He gets to, the, he gets to the, the stake, they tie him to the stake, and they give him one last chance to recant and come back to Rome. And he says, no. You can read this account in Fox's Book of Martyrs. They light the fire, and as the fire is licking his body, as it continues to consume his body, he seems to not notice, and he reaches out his hands, in the symbolic act, and washes his hands in the flames as he dies. I read this story, 290 Christians died under the persecution of Queen Mary during this time. Men, women, and children who refused to recant their faith and who refused to not share their faith. And it struck me as I was reading this, and I examined my own life how little trivial things will keep me from sharing my faith. What compelled them to, at the sake of losing their own life, Not seeing their children ever again for the sake of the gospel. What would compel them to do this? You may ask yourself, what does this have to do with me or evangelism or the time period we live in? Well, the same thing that compelled these men and women to count their own lives as nothing. To boldly share the gospel, even under the threat of losing their own lives. is the same thing that should cause us to do the same. What would compel men to do do this? What would urge them to willingly lay down their lives for the truth of their Savior? Let me also ask you, do these stories sound crazy to you? When you really think about it, I know it's very noble for us to think of like, you know, I'd take a bullet for a friend or yeah, I'd I'd give up my life for Jesus. But in the back of your mind, you really think that's actually kind of crazy that I would actually be tied to a stake and burnt to death for this story about a man who died for me 2,000 years ago. The men and women in these stories, and the stories you can read in Fox's book, of Martyrs, the end of Hebrews 11, and the millions that have died as martyrs between the ascension of Christ and now, all understood the truth of what we'll be looking at today. The word of God changed their perspectives on life, what life is all about, and it motivated them to share the gospel, even it cost them their lives. And I hope that this examination today will cause us to rethink these things for ourselves as well. I'm going to go ahead and pray before we read the scripture this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it exposes the deepest fears in our hearts, our deepest concerns. It shows us our need for you. It tells us the truth of the gospel that we were sinners that had no hope outside of Jesus Christ. And it motivates us to share that with other people. I pray that as we examine your word this morning, that it would not be lifeless words on a page, but it would be the words of life from your very mouth to encourage us, to empower us, to embolden us, to live out a faith that is not our own, but is for the whole world to hear. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. If you would, read or turn to Romans chapter 3. I'm going to go ahead and read the whole passage. 9 through 31, and then we're going to go back through it and just kind of go through it verse by verse. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at this present time. So that he might be, the ju- be just and the justifier of the one who places his faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. But what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The beginning of the sermon where I'm going to spend most of my time is going to be fairly weighty, or at least it was for me. And part of the reason for that and the reason that Paul lays out the passage in this way is to give us a weight of the need of our redemption. We must understand the need for evangelism before we'll ever have the desire to share evangelism with other people. We have to start with, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, the bad news. The several verses do this for us. Look at verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. We are all under sin, or better put, under the power of sin. Not just occasionally sinning, but enslaved to sin. Under the control of sin. All here in the Greek, if you look at any of your favorite theologians, actually means All not some not many not few but all is in every single person every single person that has ever lived or ever will live other than Christ is under sin in this text text and others when the bible says Jews and Greeks you may have already you may already know this or Jews and Gentiles it is simply a way for him to distinguish the fact that he's talking about everyone in the entire world in the Jewish mindset there were Jews and then there was everybody else and so when he says the Jews, the Gentiles, the Jews, and the Greeks, he's saying everyone on the planet is under sin. Maybe we do not feel the need to evangelize because we do not understand why we should. Maybe the depth of our gratitude and willingness to surrender all is measured by the depth of our understanding of what God has done for us. We were not simply good people that God is making better. We were not people God was happy with, and based on our good looks and right choices, decided to let us into His family. Perspective matters. I'll give you a quick illustration. When I was like nine or ten, my mom and dad remember the story pretty well. My grandpa had a construction company in the backyard. He had this back of this construction facility. He had a big fenced-in yard, and in this yard was full of cars and some boats and a couple. I think there was like some RVs back there, and me and my friend went back there. Again, I think I was nine or ten. In our mind, we were like, this is so cool. There's a junkyard back here. So we took some rocks and some sticks, and we were around and started smashing lights and mirrors and damaged everything we could on all of these different cars, all these different boats. And our perspective was these didn't have much value. Come to find out, my grandpa was actually leasing this area to the bank next door to house their repo vehicles. And they are all fairly new vehicles, so thank God for insurance. It didn't end up, I don't think, hurting anybody too bad, but my perspective was wrong. <laughs> the severity of any action directly corresponds to the value of that thing that was acted upon. In my mind, those cars didn't have any value, so therefore there was no severity included in, in, my, in what I was doing. But my perspective needed to be changed. Sin is so indefinitely deserving of God's wrath because he is the object of our sin and he is infinitely worthy of our worship. It is a modern misconception that our sin is not that big of a deal because the modern misconception of God is that he is not really that big of a deal. If you look at David, he understood this, right? When you read Psalms, when you look at David's life, when he sins against Bathsheba, when he murders and he commits adultery... What's his response? Do you remember? He grieved, but what did he say? Against you and you only have I sinned. He understood that his sin, as grievous as it was against the people in his life, and that's not discounting it. It is a grievous thing to sin against another human being. But he understood it was infinitely more problematic that he had sinned against a holy God. And it crushed him. It crushed him. Our biggest need, according to scripture, is not that our lives get cleaned up, that our marriages look better, that our kids act right, that our finances improve, that we get that job, that we pass that test, that we marry that person, that our bodies be healed, that we get over that addiction. These are not our greatest needs. Our greatest need is that we be reconciled to a holy God, and this is hopeless because it requires perfection. We are in a hopeless, hopeless state. The good news is Jesus was perfect. Right? But we are not. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 puts it this way: and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Dead. In once in which you once walked, following after the course of this world, following the prince and the power of this era, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind. You see what he's doing there. He's saying the reason you lived the way you did in your passions, pursuing the things you knew you should not pursue, no matter what your vice was, the reason you did that is because by nature you were born under wrath. You're following after what your heart was inclined to follow after. Without a heart transplant, we would all still be pursuing those things to our Death into our ultimate destruction. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, Ephesians says. Do you see the finality of this? The depth of this? We are not born morally neutral. We are born morally bad. We are not neutral moral agents. We are sinners, both in our actions and by our nature. If you're a parent or a grandparent here, I don't need to tell you that children are born sinners. I really believe that anyone who does not believe in the doctrine of total depravity has never had a child. I have I have seven great examples that I can show you that children, are we all, not just children, are all sinners. Do you have to teach your child to do what is right or do what is wrong? Which one comes naturally? It's, it's wrong, right? I can tell you this. One of my favorite... I've got so many stories I could share on this level, but one of my favorites is we lived in, we were were living in Rogersville for a little while and didn't have a lot to do. We were crammed into a small duplex, three children in a 800 square foot duplex, and there was a park right behind our duplex, and a vacation Bible school would come through, and they set up this outdoor vacation Bible school. It was great because our kids could literally just walk out and go to it and walk back at the end of the day, and if you've not met my oldest daughter, she's 21 now, she's married she's always been into theater and speech and she comes back one day with the leaders of this camp and they were so excited to meet us they're like Mr. Acorn Mrs. Acorn it's so great to meet you we're like oh yeah okay and they're like when can you guys come perform and I was like come perform she's like you know in your traveling circus and I was like what and she's like you know don't one of you do trapeze which one you got a lion or something My daughter had so convincingly lied to these adults that we were in a traveling circus, that they truly believed that we were going to come perform for them. This came naturally to her. I did not teach her to lie like this to other adults. Paul leaves no room for misunderstanding. I'm going to recapitulate. Those verses really quick here in in a brief way. But just to give, give you an understanding of how clear Paul is wanting to communicate this. In just verses 11 through 18, Paul says this. No one is righteous. No one. Not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And before you re- lift your eyes from those verses and say, yeah, all those people are like that, we fall in the category of all. All of us do. And if you don't understand that, you need to reexamine your heart. All of us are capable in, of, cre- of performing the worst-case scenario sins. The problem is in America, most of our sins are socially acceptable, and other people's aren't. And so it's easy to look at other people and go, well, wish he'd get his life together. And we deal in our hearts with greed and lust and the desire for other things that we don't have that other people do, and we write those off as okay because it's not outward. It's not something that people can look at and put on the news and say, look at how bad they are. And if we don't understand that we are equally of deserving of God's wrath, as the prostitute, as the the fill-in-the-blank worst person you think exists, then you don't understand the nature of sin or the gospel. You have to get your perspective corrected on your own standing, your neighbor's standing. Even the sweet little old lady that does not love Jesus, that's your neighbor who bakes cookies for you once a year, is in desperate need of the gospel or she will end up in hell. Do you understand the severity of the diagnosis here? The great physician has examined you and he has reported your condition. You're not self-diagnosing. God has diagnosed you and he has said, you are terminal. You are like the walking dead. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are not merely sick and dying. You are dead. And there is no hope of curing yourself. You will never see a dead man who cures himself. You feel the tension and the weight of this passage. Speaking of evangelism tactics, one of the ones that was given to me, and if you've used this, it's fine. I just would encourage you not to use it anymore. I've heard this several times as an analogy. You're on a boat, and there's this raging ocean around you. And all around the boat, there are people drowning. They're treading water. At any moment, they're going to go under. And you have a... Life ring this life ring is the gospel and you're going to throw it to them And these All they have to do is grasp onto it All they have to do is grab it and they can be saved but if they don't They'll seek to the depths of the ocean, which is hell I guess in this analogy But here's the problem We aren't treading water. We are a bloated corpse at the bottom of the ocean. Crabs are picking at our flesh We do not and cannot grab a life ring Jesus had to dive in, pull us to the surface, and revive us so that we could be saved. We are not the hero of the story. Jesus is. We are neither the one who throws the life ring nor the one who accepts it. Jesus does the work of salvation. And this should give you hope. It does not rely on you. You cannot screw this up. It is God's plan. It is his work we get to participate in it. Being under sin has first and foremost ruined our relationship with God. Please understand that sin is primarily a condition of rebellion against God, not simply doing bad things against other people. This is why it is so sad and pointless when people argue that they are basically good people. They don't need the gospel. What they mean is that they treat other people well. They don't steal, they don't kill, they don't lie much. They give to charities, they don't kick dogs. <clears throat> but that isn't the main question. The question is, do you love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind and strength? Do you love his son, Jesus Christ? God is the most important person in the universe. It is no mark of virtue to do nice things for other people or treat other people well if you have no love or reference or reverence, I'm sorry, for God. God gave you the very breath in your lungs. You owe it to him. John Piper said this, so the mind that is under sin does not seek God and does not know God and does not fear God, and it doesn't matter what we do for people. If we treat the king of the universe with such disdain, we may know that we are profoundly under sin. Because of the fall and the sin that now resides within us, we cannot, cannot have peace with God. God in all his perfection cannot look on sin. His holiness demands that we are punished because of our sin. The wages of sin is death. What we have earned in our sin is the righteous judgment of God. ask you something, does this seem unfair to you? Paul addresses this in Romans 9. This is something that seems unfair, especially to the American mind. This is why theology matters. When someone tells you it doesn't really matter if you study theology, if you really study the Bible, you just need to understand that Jesus was a good person. Theology matters. The gospel hinges on proper theology. It seems unfair to the modern American mind because we view our sin as so very, very insignificant and malleable to the culture. Our sin is seen as merely indiscretions or personal life choices. And God is viewed so very, very small and impotent that he is nothing more than a paper tiger or worse, a genie in a bottle who is supposed to give us what we need. The prosperity gospel is just as wicked as no gospel. I read this in a book review. I haven't actually read the book by Drew Dyke's book called Yawning at Tigers, but I thought this was profound. The living God of the universe is untamable. He's good, but he isn't safe, to quote C.S. Lewis. Try to subdue him and you might lose an arm or worse. The living God of the Old Testament roars like a lion. The living God of the New Testament is the lion of Judah. As Michael Horton says, nobody today seems to think that God is dangerous and that in and of itself is an oversight. It's dangerous because before we can yawn at God, we must first replace the majestic, holy awesome tiger of scripture with a domesticated kitten conformed to the standards of this world measured by the yardstick of political correctness who wants a god who roars who threatens who judges why not rather fashion a god in our taste a friendly god we can pet leash and export for popular appeal i'm sorry but that's yawnable what is your perspective of yourself in relationship to god is it correct do you see the hopelessness the helplessness the state that you are actually in without him, it is as bad as it sounds. And until you understand how bad it really is, there is no good news. Again, the perspective of how bad it is makes the good news how good it is. But as the old news commentator said, but wait, there's more. Thank God this isn't the end of the story. This is where we transition from the bad news to the good news The message of our evangelism is the good news and it's an outside solution. We're moving on to verses 21 through 28 now verses 21 but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. one of the greatest phrases in the Bible but now everything is hopeless in the verses we read above all are dead, no one searches after God all the enemies of all of us are enemies of God but now. Here in this passage, we see after having our perspective corrected, after proving without a shadow of a doubt that we are hopeless in our condition from birth, God breaks in. He doesn't ask permission. He doesn't wait. He doesn't look at us and go, ah, it's hopeless. I'm sorry. That really stinks. I'll throw you a life raft. Hopefully you can grab it. No, God breaks into existence in our time and space, and he provides... A solution, a solution alien to us. A solution we could not earn or even conjure up on our own. He offers us his son. Verses 22 through 25 says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. If you look at that passage, starting in verse 22, it has a flow to it. The righteousness of God, righteousness that is not ours, it's righteousness of God, is apart from us, is not earned by us, it's fully his, through faith. In other words, we receive this righteousness not by works or something we conjured up. We receive this righteousness through faith. Faith in what? In Jesus Christ, not a preacher, not in ourselves, not in tithing or good works, not the government, not the church, in Christ alone. For who? For all who believe. Not some believe, not those who do not believe. It is for all who put their faith in Jesus Christ alone. God's righteousness through faith will be applied to all of them. We can have full confidence in this. Have we lost our wonder when it comes to these passages? Have we lost the ability to see the great transition that we just witnessed in this passage? The transition from being hopelessly lost to God breaking in in spite of ourselves and the depth of our depravity to save us from all sorts of sin? I'm guilty of this. There are days, weeks, months that I have no emotion about this. And this is why it's important that we read our scriptures regularly. We are constantly fighting the battle of becoming lackadaisical about what God has said about us and what he has done for us. We need to constantly remind ourselves of these things. It should bring you to tears occasionally. Um, full confession, I had no tears till this morning when we were singing these songs. And it hit me. It hit me hard that this, what I'm about to preach is not something simply I'm communicating to you. It's for me. It's for all of us. It is not just for the hearer. It's for the preacher as well. It's for all your pastors. It's for every person who's ever lived or will live other than Christ. Church, we were enemies of God. And now through faith in Jesus Christ, we are friends of God, sons of God. This should excite you. It should motivate you. But motivate you to do what? the title of the sermon, to evangelize, to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. Verses 29 through 30, or is God the God of Jews only? See, not the God of Gentiles also, yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. The natural flow or progression conclusion from Romans 3 should be this, verses 19 through 20, where we started. We were hopelessly dead in our sins with no chance of saving ourselves. Verses 21 through 28, God in his goodness and mercy broke in and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And now in 21 through 30 or 29 through 31, because we owe all we have in love to Jesus Christ, we are compelled in love for him and the rest of the world, the Gentiles also, to share the good news of God breaking in. Paul reminds the readers here that this is good news of God breaking into the hopeless narrative of their lives, and not simply for the Jews only, but that the gospel has created a new nation, one that includes all nations, all languages. He echoes this refrain in Galatians when he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. He is telling them that they have a new identity One that is not rooted in where we were born, what social class we belong to, what your gender is, but rooted firmly and only in Christ Jesus. I bring this up because this is immensely practical for when we live now. The media and everything you read today and everything fighting against other people is all focused on your identity. What class you fall into, what race you fall into, what your gender is. All of these things pit one person against another, and the gospel says no, We are tearing down the walls of hostility. In Christ, you are one nation. There is no other nation. We are Christians before we're Americans. We're Christians before we're Brazilian, name, whatever. We are Christians before how I identify in my race or anything else. We are Christians first, which means that anyone else that bears the name Christian is my brother and sister. I should not identify them any differently than my brother, my sister. And what more intimate way to identify someone than as your brother or sister? So what does this mean practically? What do Jews and Gentiles have to do with me here? Here's some practical application. God is not an American God. He's a God of all people. He's not even primarily an American God. God is not white. He's not black. He's not middle class, lower class, Republican, Democrat. He is a God of all races and social classes. God does not want us to have primarily white, black, Chinese, Mexican, cowboy, contemporary, traditional churches. He wants our churches to be as diverse as heaven will be. We should strive for the same thing God wants. We should open our arms as wide in community, hospitality, friendship, and service as the gospel is. The gospel excludes no one except for those who would not place their faith in Jesus Christ. So how should this motivate us. The good news of Christ's work in our life compels us. If I could think of a stronger word, I would, but it compels us to share the good news with everyone. When we rightly understand that we are not our own, that we were bought at a price, God gave his son to save us. And when we could not save ourselves, how could we not share that with others? To not share the gospel with others would make us a thief if we're a believer, we're not our own. We don't own our future. We don't own the decisions in our life. God does. So when we refuse to share what he has given us with other people, we are acting as a thief by hoarding to ourselves what God intended for us to give to other people. Do not rob God of his glory. There's a misconception here. I don't know why I put it in this part of the message. It could have probably fit anywhere, but I of it and i wanted to share it i think there's a misconception out there that missionaries are a subset of christians that carry out the great commission or are called to share their faith with other people outside of their home country and that not everyone is called to be in missions some are called to go some are called to give and some are called to pray the way i would correct that is to say we are all called to go give and pray none of us are excluded from any of those all of us are called to go all of us are called to give and pray All Christians are called to do the work of the missionary. We are commissioned to share the good news proclaimed in this passage. We are all missionaries in that sense, called to share our faith or evangelize in whatever surrounding God's have placed us. Some Christians are called to live out their faith overseas, like the Boyles and the Howes and the Agars. But all of us are called to live it out. The Boyles are missionaries to Japan because that's where God has called them. But please don't tell me you're called to be a missionary to a far off land, but feel no desire to share your love for Christ with people here. The Boyles were missionaries before they left to Japan. Before they went to Korea, before that. They were sharing their faith here because they understood that their calling is the same whether it's here or in Japan. We are called to give everything we are to Christ. It's not ours to begin with. So what does this look like for us? cannot tell you what it specifically looks like for you. But I can tell you that you're called to do something. No Christian is called to simply sit back and watch everyone else serve. I read a book by Oz Guinness a while ago called The Calling and he called out this false dichotomy that we actually pull from a very Roman Catholic idea that there's clergy and there's laymen. That my job as a pastor, Pastor Greg, Pastor Nathan, Pastor Jory, Pastor Sean, our jobs are to be professional Christians and the rest of you are just lay people. So You come, you listen, you get equipped, but that's, there's a distinction between those who serve and those who don't serve. That's not how this works. We are all priests in God's kingdom. There's a priesthood of believers. All of us are given the task, but we're given different roles. My role as a elder looks different than Greg's role as an elder. My role as a Christian looks different than Nick's role as a Christian. My role, all of us are going to look different. And at different stages in your life, it's going to look different. And that's why I don't really like cookie-cutter approaches to evangelism. For the stay-at-home mom with three children under her feet, trying to just keep stuff together and keep kids from dying, okay? That evangelism may look like calling a friend one evening and crying with them over the hardships of motherhood. Evangelism might look like a play date at the park and talking to someone that they have never met before about Jesus. For me, my primary circles are in business right now. Um, it's operating ethically, it's uh, staying out of the conversations that we hear so often in the construction world, it's trying to be faithful to what I do and looking for opportunities to share the gospel, which is convicting because sometimes it happens and sometimes I pass them right on by. No one's perfect at this, but reminding ourselves of the truths that we talked about this morning, I hope will compel you and I'm hoping it will continue to compel me to start being more evangelistic in that sense. Evangelism is just a fancy word for sharing with others what God has done for you and the truth that you know about it. So in conclusion, I think I would ask you to think on these things this week. If I could summarize everything down to three things. It would be that God has done a wonderful work in and for us that we could not do for ourselves. We and everyone else is hopelessly lost. That God broke in, giving us what we did not deserve. He gave us his Son and his righteousness. And lastly, this should stir our hearts to action. We should never read these words and not be motivated and compelled to share them with others, whether they be here or across the sea. And if they don't, if these words do not strike you, I would ask you to go back and reread these words until they do. There's something wrong with your heart if you do not read the words of the gospel and it does not in any way move you or motivate you to love God and love others. The gospel is not only what we share, but also why we share. It is the message and the motivation for evangelism.